guest today is Alfie Cohn, the author of 14 books on education and human behavior. Uh, Mr. Cohn also lectures widely and publishes excellent essays on his website, alfiecohn.org. Welcome to the show, Mr. Cohn. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you've written many books that will be familiar to listeners of this podcast. Punished by Rewards is perhaps the, the most famous one that guided me when I was getting into the whole uh, thinking differently about education thing back in college. But the other uh -huh. big books are The Schools Our Children Deserve, Unconditional Parenting, The Homework Myth. And um, I think a lot of the people who listen to the show are probably already familiar and in agreement with most of your arguments against homework, grades, and other uh, heavy-handed extrinsic motivators, uh, and the sort of large amounts of competition and rigid standards that are part of the American school system. Um, I just want to make sure everyone uh, also knows that you publish uh, essays and articles that are all free on your website. And some of the recent ones, if, if you want to go check them out, I recommend uh, the progressive teacher's role in the classroom. That'll be very interesting for anyone who is really into self-directed learning and wants to explore the boundaries between progressive education and self-directed education. And uh, rewards are still bad news 25 years later. Uh, so let's go and start at the beginning though, Alfie, can you tell me, uh, Mr. Cohn, can you tell me about the arc of your career and research and, and where it began and how it's evolved? Oh, let's see. I started a long time ago. I wrote it. My first book was about the destructive effects of competition in all areas of human life. And um, that led me to learn about alternatives to uh, to competition, and specifically in a classroom setting, what it means to have kids learning with and from one another in cooperative groups. And that led to another book about altruism and empathy, which also pulled me back to thinking about education uh, and schools as places where we can help kids uh, to grow into caring people based on the capacity that humans have to be caring or aggressive, cooperative or competitive, selfish or altruistic, and so on. And um, after that, I, I moved to the book about rewards, which more explicitly talked about school as well as parenting and, for that matter, workplace applications of our mm -hmm. understanding of research about the destructive effects of rewards, just like punishments. I had been a classroom teacher for a while. I had been a child and a student. Recent research, in fact, suggests that more than 87% of adults were children at one point or another. <laughs> and so I began to think of what my experiences were in education, and then I had been a teacher, and then I started visiting classrooms, and at that point in my career, I started writing more and more about about education as I had more ideas about what was wrong with the status quo and what should replace it. Uh, your book, Punished by Rewards, and also Daniel Pink's book, Drive, were really big for me in understanding intrinsic versus extrinsic motivators. Are you a fan of, of Daniel Pink's work? Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he, he gave it a, a, a business twist, and, then, and he reviewed some of the same research and made some of the arguments that I had uh -huh. in Punished by Rewards and reached a much wider audience uh -huh. about which an author 
often has mixed feelings, but in general, I'm happy to have more people spreading the word and challenging the pop behaviorism that's so pervasive in our society. I really appreciate anyone who takes self-determination theory seriously and talks about autonomy, mastery, and relatedness, uh, because I think it's very hard to get away from those uh, these sort of fundamental truths about human behavior that that, that are so easily lost. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how your in, your interests have evolved over the year, or maybe your 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 perspectives over you know a, a thirty year career in in writing about education? What are you what are you thinking about more today than you were ten or twenty or thirty years ago? Well, I guess it's a little discouraging to say that I. I'm thinking about many of the same things and want to just take a lot of mainstream folks and decision makers by the shoulders and shake them and say, haven't you been listening? You know, Mm. um, I don't want to repeat myself, but, you know, I I find that I'm ready to write a book when I'm really pissed off about something. (laughs) Uh, When when there's an enormous growing amount of research all pointing in one direction along with good arguments and logic, and yet our practice continues to be veering in the other direction. So there are new topics that have continued to interest me, but some of the same basic ones that I wrote about quite a while ago are still the ones that exercise me today and about which we seem to be making too little progress. The whole top-down, heavy-handed, corporate-style, test-driven approach to school reform is continues to be the case, you know, the the use of, of uh, grades and tests, uh, you know, the ones you ticked off, homework, worksheets, lectures, giving kids too little say about their learning, not enough emphasis on collaboration. All of that continues to be the case. Mm. And so in my blog and occasional articles, I come at it from a slightly new direction, but um uh, and I'm, of course, excited to see new research that supports some of the same points mm-hmm. that I and others have been making for a long time. Mm-hmm. But it's not like I have a brand new uh, cause that's just developed in the last couple of years that I haven't thought about before. In a way, mm-hmm. I wish that were true, you know, mm-hmm. but because um, mm-hmm. that would indicate we've solved those problems. Let's move on to the next ones. And well, yet we I, haven't I, so much. I really appreciated your uh your take on grit, which maybe you you published that roughly five years ago, but uh, the Angela Duckworth uh, yeah, grit yeah. craze, uh, I just love seeing your your artillery lobbed in that direction. So thank you for that. Essay. Yeah, and not just, well, thank you. Um, I've also, I wrote parallel pieces too about um, Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset. Mm-hmm, that's right. Um, and, and other things where... Um, What's generally going on here is we're blaming the kids in, instead of um, looking at the systemic or structural causes of the problem and asking how do we fix what we're doing. But instead, anytime there's a focus on the orientation, personality, and so on of the individual, um, I, I get a little nervous about mm. whose interest that serves. My favorite Latin question is cui bono, which means who benefits from this, you know? Who benefits when we think that we just need to instill in kids more self-regulation or or whatever? And then the answer is obvious when you ask the question that way. Uh, it's convenient for us as adults, as parents or teachers, or parents who are also teachers, to not have to rethink what they're asking kids to do 
or how they're asking them to do it or the extent to which kids have some say about it and just function for, you know, focus on making the kids do it better. I mean, that's true even of stuff that sounds nice and isn't objectionable in its own right, like like helping kids develop mindfulness, you know. But mm. yeah, that's fine. But these are often and it's ways of, again, diverting attention from some of the larger issues and the context in which kids are put at home and at school. That's right. Grit to what end? Growth mindset to what end? Mindfulness to what end? Is it to enhance the, the student's autonomy and, and sense of control of their life? Or is it yeah, to, to meet these yeah. large external goals? That's a slightly different argument, and I agree with that too. I guess my point is even when it's to a good end, such as enhancing those char- good characteristics uh-huh. of kids, it still ignores the structural features that might have gotten in the way. In other words, let, let's say, for example, that a growth mindset can help kids become more determined to do good things and feel a sense of autonomy. Well, great, but that's only going to go so far if their choices have been circumscribed mm-hmm. by the mm-hmm. institutions in which they function. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. Um, in terms of large-scale reform, I don't want to dwell on this for too long, but the sense that I get is that your hope is to see a better funded and a more progressive public education system. Is that accurate or not? It isn't my only goal, but it is a goal. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, um, I think of democratic public schooling as a cornerstone of a democratic society. Um, and so just as someone committed to social justice I'm committed to the idea of public education, so I want to improve it rather than get rid of it. And of course, improve it can mean any number of things, but that sits alongside other goals I have for society, for education, and for individuals. So let's talk about some of the alternative and progressive schools in the private realm. Uh, I think most people think of Montessori, Waldorf, Reggio Emilia schools when they think of the classic progressive schools, but there are many other just private independent schools that proclaim to be uh, progressive, uh, often charging quite a bit, not always, but often. Um, yeah. In general, are, are you a fan of these kinds of private alternatives? Well, first, they're not all private. There are public Montessori schools, and I think uh, to the extent there's publicly funded preschool and kindergarten, many teachers use the Reggio model for those as well. Yes. I don't know if there's any public Waldorf schools, but in theory they could be because there are ways of, of doing that. Um, so that's, these are not exclusively or you know, inherently private. I, I have mixed and, and, and complex reactions to each of them, and frankly, each of those topics could take us a while. <laughs> uh, um, you know, and I have a few paragraphs on each that I have kind of what used to be called a macro on my computer where I can slot that in when someone writes yeah. to ask me, what do you think yeah. about, about this? Um, I, I think if I were forced to pick a, a school for my own children at random and only knew that it, for young children and I knew only that it was Montessori or not Montessori, I would probably pick Montessori. But there are different 
Montessori organizations. Mm-hmm. It is also true that you can open up a Montessori school tomorrow, mm-hmm. call it that, and do whatever you want in it. That's right. You know. Uh, so I also find that some some there there tends to be almost a a cult like flavor to in some circles within both Montessori and the Steiner schools, like 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 Waldorf, that troubles me. You know if. If Steiner or Maria Montessori didn't say it, it's it's not of any uh, use or relevance. That's right, fundamentalism. Yeah, exactly. But that's not true everywhere, and um, and also there's a divergence between even the folks who seem committed to the general approach uh, that they're talking about and what what's actually going on. So, for example, I I keynoted a couple of. Um, Montessori National Montessori Conferences, the American Montessori Association, which is a little less fundamentalist than the international group, um, and um, you know, I did my my a little piece on rewards and praise being you know controlled through seduction and so on, and I even quoted Montessori herself, who had talked about the dangers of that kind of manipulation with good job and stickers and stars, and I could see the shock uh, <laughs> in the audience. This is in a large keynote session where for many of these teachers, not all to be sure, but for many, it was something they'd never heard before. So does that reflect poorly on Montessori schools, you know, on the training of Montessori teachers? I, I don't know. But the mm-hmm. point is that there's uh, there's there's room for, for growth there. Uh uh, Reggio stuff, I don't have any concerns with, frankly. I've, I, I haven't made the pilgrimage to Italy to see it like many of my friends have, but uh, everything I, I see about it I love, including, possibly to anticipate where we're going in this conversation, including the Reggio emphasis on the dialogical model between teacher and kids and the way both play a role in the children's mm. development, which I mm-hmm. find to be very, very impressive. And so, Re- Reggio yeah, is I, fairly exclusively focused on, on preschool and, and, and near that age range. It is, though I've argued in print, in fact, and I think others agree with me, that virtually all of its principles are just as applicable to, and we could go through them one by one to to older students as well, hmm. and that's true in general. I think of very thoughtful, developmentally appropriate, responsive, autonomy supporting early childhood education. You know, my friend and mentor uh, Debbie Meyer, who founded a number of extraordinary inner city schools, both elementary and high school in New York and Boston. When she wanted to fa- say what should high good high school education look like, you know, she conceived it as a as incorporating some of the best stuff in great kindergarten learning. Mm-hmm. You know, the noting the irony that you know in many in many schools, even those that aren't regio oriented, that um, you know kids have more say about their learning. Uh, mm-hmm when they're five than when they're 15, you know? That, that is a, a deep yeah. irony. The average American high school is is excellent preparation for the real world if you are living in North Korea. 
You know? <laughs> oh, you, you have excellent one-liners. I also remember you you making a quip about uh, standardized tests. The, well, they tell us something. They tell us about the, the income of the, the zip code that the, the student comes from. Yeah, I, right. My usual line is the, the size of the houses near the school. Oh, that's yeah, right. But then, then after the sort of you know glib soundbite, I then go on to say, now let's look at, at the research you know that supports that and why it up to 80% of the variance in test scores actually just reflect socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm getting at. So. And, and that's a point I've tried to hone in my talks with parents also. Uh, uh-huh. So let's move on to the, the realm that a lot of the listeners uh, of this show are, are most interested in, which is the realm of home-based uh-huh. alternatives, such as homeschooling and unschooling, and then also self-directed learning centers and the highly alternative schools like uh, democratic free schools. I know you have a lot of thoughts on these. And I want to, again, refer listeners to the, um, the essay, The Progressive Teacher's Role in the Classroom. Uh, are there any other essays or articles out there that, uh, that you'd like to point people to at this moment? Yeah, you know, when, when I spoke at, at Arrow in 2005, um, I gave a talk that was transcribed and is still available for folks as, um, on video, which is called, or I, I called it, The Trouble with Pure Freedom, hmm. A Case for Active Adult Involvement in Progressive Education. And that's on my website, uh, the whole transcript of my remarks, as well as a link to the video for people who would Great. rather watch and I'll put so a link to that with, in the show notes. Yeah, great. So let's start okay. with uh, home-based alternatives. Um, just what's what's your level of exposure to the worlds of homeschooling and unschooling? I'm curious. Um, I have some exposure. I have been invited to speak at some large homeschooling conferences, uh, including one conference just of unschoolers in Massachusetts some years ago, and I was uh, had a nice relationship with the folks who ran the um, Holt Associates the, and their growing yes. without schooling network. Uh, Pat Faringa, Faringa, uh, and, uh, a recent yeah. guest on this podcast, yes. Oh yes, yeah. So and you know at those events in particular, let alone in email exchanges, I came to hear that 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 position, and I also, in fact. Year, many years ago, and I was just doing some journalistic writing. I wrote a piece for the Atlantic Monthly about homeschooling, which required me to dig deep into the research on what was going on in the movement. I wasn't writing that as an advocate for a given position or type of homeschooling. So I have some sense of it, you know. Okay. And I, I won't ask you, like, what do you think of homeschooling and unschooling? But let me ask a more useful question. What do you see as, as the best aspects of these approaches? And what do you see as perhaps the the biggest potential drawbacks or handicaps? Um, so with, with respect to homeschooling itself, I mean, when somebody says to me, what do, you, what do you think of homeschooling? I begin by pointing out that it can be done not only in many different ways, but also for many different reasons. And mm. the latter is as important as the former. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still probably the case that the vast majority of homeschoolers, probably it, last time I looked, the guess was around three quarters, that might even be more than that, um, are basically conservative Christians who are replicating what I think you and I would regard as the worst aspects of traditional schooling at the dining room table. Um, that's what most homeschooling is like. Now, the unschooling uh, model obviously is very different, 
my macro self, that is my focus on social justice and issues of that kind, uh, consistent with what I said at the beginning of our conversation, uh, I have concerns about some of the most interesting kids and their parents uh, leaving public schools rather than staying to make them even better, though I certainly understand parents who feel they have no alternative, uh, given what many of the schools in their area may look like now. So I'm not trying not to judge, but I, uh, I do always think that that's a shame. In, in um, sort of free schools and self-directed learning and unschooling, I think where the, the obvious overlap with progressive ed and with my own work is what they're not doing, mm. uh, which is to say the movement away from, you know, uh, authoritarian uh, styles of instruction, a focus, I would hope, on uh, they're, what they're not doing is includes a focus on just cramming forgettable facts into short-term memory, the use of worksheets and quizzes and grades and tests. So we're all agreed on that. Uh, the question is, is it possible that we're missing out on some of the good stuff or getting rid of some of the bad stuff, which is what I talk about in a couple of those those articles. So uh, obviously I'm, a, I'm concerned about the richest kind of intellectual development. And my argument, following that of progressive educators from John Dewey, Jean Piaget, and many others, um, is that there is a role, an important role for the adult to help develop uh, a curriculum with and for kids, with and for, rather than taking a sort of backseat role and just being there to answer questions when the kid has one and waiting for the child to take the initiative. And one of the points I made in that Arrow lecture is, uh, and then again in my more recent blog post that you referenced, is that there seems to me to be a kind of paradox where some self-directed learning and unschooling folks uh, ironically share the same belief about adult involvement that hardcore mm -hmm. traditionalists have, which is that such adult involvement and initiation is necessarily uh, controlling, power-based, authoritarian, something like that. The only difference is the traditionalists say that's a good thing. And the, the unschoolers and self-directed people say, of course, that's a bad thing. The traditionalists, I mean, the progressives like me, ironically, in some ways, are more radical than the self-directed people, because at least on this level of analysis, because we question the premise about that adult involvement or initiative has to be power-based and bad for kids and so on. And so by questioning that assumption that binds the two people at opposite ends of the spectrum, we're able to talk about what good adult involvement looks like and how a classroom can reflect that 
that lovely metaphor that the Reggio people have of a ball being bounced back and forth between adult mm-hmm. and kids, mm-hmm. where the kids may begin with a question, but the adult puts a spin on that question in a, in a way that the child may not have thought of, uh, sends it back to the kids who then add their observations, maybe another kid's question that's related. The adult helps to show the connection between the two children's uh, curiosity, and back and forth it goes until we've got a project developed that is far better and more motivating for the kids than if the adult had come up with the curriculum mm-hmm. on his or her own, but is also far richer, more complicated, and generative than what kids would come up with on their own, and that there is no shame in that adult involvement. There is only um, enhancement of the original project. So I think there's actually a lot of, of agreement here between the majority of unschoolers and also people who run self-directed learning centers who I know and what you're uh-huh. describing. And I think that, that what you're, uh, the sort of extreme version of self-directed learning that you are you're using in this example, I, I would say we could call orthodox Sudbury. We could also call uh, the pretty uh-huh. extreme end of unschooling in which uh, yeah, any sort of adult involvement is is considered negative. You absolutely have to wait until the, the child initiates something and then you only answer the question. You don't try to to, to you know play with that or bounce the ball back and forth anymore. It's like, here's your ball, I, I patched it up. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think a lot of the families and educators and I, who I know in this space um, actually do function a lot like what you're describing. I function that way myself when I work with uh, teenagers. I, I feel like the one big difference here may be yeah. just the consensual nature of signing up for the, the class or the experience in the first place. Uh, I, am, I am vehement about not uh, working with any young people who are, are being forced to attend whatever I'm offering, whether it's a, a experiential education thing, whether it's a little short workshop, and so that that element feels a, a bit different from what do I, I imagine a progressive school to be like, in which you can still have a lot of kids who are kind of being forced to be there, uh, and and that leads to, um, you know, a, a more subtle form of coercion potentially that that comes in a velvet glove instead of a bald fist. Uh, well, those you were right clearly that those are two different issues. The, the latter having to do with whether. Um, Education is mandatory, whether kids have to go to school. That's that's whether they have to go to a school. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not a libertarian, and I'm not, which incidentally, you know, Dan Greenberg at Sudbury Valley is. It's not a coincidence that many of the people in this self-directed movement are political libertarians, which place in my, to my mind, uh, a disproportionate emphasis on self-sufficiency, um, often to the exclusion of, of community. That's not true of everyone, of course. But uh, I would, before we talk about whether kids should have to go to school, I'd like to see a lot of rethinking of what school is, so that it isn't a sort of forced or unnatural choice where it's thumbs up or thumbs down to what most schooling is, which you and I agree, you know, is often quite quite distressing and unappealing. Um, and, and But to your first point, I hope you're right that that's only a kind of extreme version of the fundamentalist Sudbury model. But, you know, the article that you suggested I read about this before our conversation by Peter Gray 
says exactly this. I mean, I'm not I'm not caricaturing this model. He talks about uh, adult initiated curriculum as quote coercive. He taught, uses the loaded language of a curriculum that's imposed, meaning it's not the child's own. He says that adults should, quote, provide help when asked, that education is, quote, entirely the responsibility of the student. All of this suggests that this is a very different model from the one that has an important, responsive, respectful role for the adult in helping to pose questions that kids um, might not have thought of, to introduce them to resources they may not have known exist, and to help connect more than one student to create a community of kids in a classroom in a way where the kids may not have had that connection uh, if left to their own devices. So if you're telling me that what I've just described as a progressive model is contrary to Sudbury Valley, contrary to Peter Gray, contrary to other free schools I visited, is more the norm now among people marching under the banner of self-directed learning. That's terrific. And I'll make one other point here. Besides kids' intellectual growth, which I think is more important than just academic skills or knowledge mm -hmm. acquisition, I think that the progressive model with this kind of respectful but continuous adult involvement not only helps kids develop socially and morally as well as intellectually in a way that doesn't happen when the kids have to be the ones to initiate everything and we just stand by observing and serving as a resource. But there's another irony here, which is people who are committed to social justice may come to realize that leaving kids to their own devices and assuming that, you know, more or less, they're, these little acorns, given enough sunshine and water, will grow into oaks all on their own, uh, that the adults mostly just mess stuff up and should just respect and let children grow in their own pace, in their own way. That's an excellent way to... Um, preserve and reproduce the status quo. You know, in a deep political way, that turns out to be a conservative strategy. I, I don't exactly see the connection. Can you flesh that out for me? Yeah. Um, there's, there are ways in which kids suck up what happens in the society and need help and guidance to question the social roles and structures, structures, the gender norms, the racial beliefs, the notions about how decisions are made. Like, let's take, I'll take two quick examples. One is, how do kids play? What kind of games do they, do they engage in? Well, if you're growing up in America, you have, without even thinking about it, been led to believe that a game involves winners and losers that it must be necessarily be competitive. The goal is to outdo other people who are playing, either other individuals or one group defeating another group. In America, it's very, very likely that kids will just, they turn on the TV, they see what's available for them for, you know, weekend games, and they think we have to play competitive games. It's about winning. A, an adult would be the one 
to introduce the idea that there are purely cooperative games, which I've written about, and there's other mm-hmm. books on them, how they work. But that's not going to occur to most kids in a competitive society without adult help at rethinking the premises of, of our social interactions. I'll give you a second example. Kids, a little older perhaps, are, are in a class meeting uh, trying to make a decision about something like where where we're going to take a field trip, you know, or or what topic we should study next, or whatever it is. How are we going to decide when we don't all agree? Well, in most societies like ours, the immediate answer is you vote. And voting is not real democracy. It's adversarial majoritarianism. Hmm. It's quick. You know, you just take a quick count, 13 want to do this, 11 want to do that. But nobody had to listen to one another. Nobody had to hash out a consensus, reach a compromise, imagine how the world looks from someone else's point of view. The guts of democracy and deciding by consensus is something kids are not going to come to on their own. Hmm. An adult not only helps them by actively being involved, taking the initiative Being responsive and respectful, but taking the initiative not only promotes their intellectual and social development in ways that a laissez-faire or hands-off model doesn't doesn't do as effectively, that adult can help kids question, challenge, rebel, consider alternatives to our whole into and in our whole society that kids aren't going to come up with. So um, or that maybe only one will, or very late, or whatever. Sure, you know. sure. But in general, this is true. So it is not only my commitment to the best kind of education and growth for children that makes me a progressive uh, educator. It's also my commitment to social change that leads me to not want to too quickly write off the importance of the active role of an adult. Mm. I find this very interesting because so much of my exposure to the world of unschooling came from one specific summer camp called Not Back to School Camp, which is very social justice. And uh, it doesn't explicitly use uh, consensus decision-making process, but but the sort of ethic is very much there. And so uh, I'm now wondering how much my own experience is skewed by this one small institution uh-huh. through, through uh-huh. which, um, you know, adults have very active, you know, we never tell them that, that they, it's, it's all teenagers. We never tell them they have, that they have to do anything aside from show up to two all group meetings a day. And then one small group advisory session with someone like me. Um, Otherwise everything else is optional and very flexible, but there is Uh definitely um, adult influence. We are passing down culture. The culture is being passed down from older campers to new campers. And uh, so I, I find this very interesting. I, um, I want to be respectful of your time, Mr. Cohn, and uh, the article by Peter Gray that you mentioned earlier, the title of that is Differences Between Self-Directed and Progressive Education. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes also. And uh, I, I agree with you. In in some ways, in that article, Peter Gray does um, stand up for the, the extreme hands-off version of self-directed learning, or he likes to call it self-directed education. Um, He also gives a lot of credit, I believe, to to your work. And and he says, I'm really glad that there's progressive schools like uh, Alfie Cohn uh, promotes. And uh, and I feel like we're we're really getting into the the weeds and the nuances here uh, when we discuss this stuff. And, And my hope is that uh, more of us in this broadly 
alternative education realm can see that we're, we're pretty much on the same team. I gave a talk at the Aero Conference a couple of years ago on this very uh, subject, because I think that uh -huh. especially within left-leaning politics in general, it's so easy for people to splinter off into their own little warring factions and, and no one organizes for, for a greater uh, good. And so I'm very thankful right, for, right. for your work and the, your promotion of progressive principles within public education, also uh, private schools. And uh, yeah, my own interests lead me to, to you know, be more in the, the unschooling and self-directed learning center realm. But uh, I, I'm with you. I certainly don't, don't think that they should be completely hands-off, except perhaps in, in rare moments. Fair enough. And I should also add that I, I don't spend most of my time in lectures, articles, or books uh, criticizing self-directed schooling, uh, free schools, unschooling, and so on. If you ask me about it, I will be happy to give you my, my thoughts on it. But by and large, the, the, the far greater threat to children's development comes from the sort of ham-handed, reactionary, top-down traditionalism that shows up, by the way, not only in public schools, but also in expensive private schools, in less expensive Catholic schools, and in many homeschooling situations. Um, so I, I want to spend most of my time trying to figure out what's wrong with and what how we can improve the... Um, the traditional premises as well as practices that continue whenever kids are around. So this is, you know, I don't define myself principally or even secondarily as a, as a critic of self-directed schooling. I just want to make sure that folks understand the richness of what progressive education can be, even though it's, it is harder to do, as Gray correctly points out, but that's not a reason to stop doing it. Mm. And in my book, The Schools Our Children Deserve, I have a lot of not only research, but stories of real progressive classrooms where most of the people I'm talking to, you know, I'm trying to get them to say, wow, I wish, how can I get my kid's teacher to do it that way? But to perhaps your listeners, the argument is a little different. It's notice the important role that the adult plays here and that, you know, structure is not the same thing as control. Just because mm -hmm. we're concerned about the latter doesn't mean we have to wipe out the former. I agree. Uh, Alfie Cohn, thank you very much for your time. And uh, anyone out there who wants more of Mr. Cohn's writing, uh, his website, alfiecone.org. His books, I assume they're available anywhere people can buy books. And uh, any other places you'd like to point us before we say goodbye? Uh, thank you for asking. I think the website will in turn lead people to uh, whatever, whatever resources they can find, including resources by people I've learned from. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Cohn. Thank you.